Hello and welcome to Adrift in Melbourne, a three-part podcast series of City Walks recorded and produced by City of Melbourne Libraries. I'm Robin Anea and I'll be your host and guide. You may know me through my books of Melbourne history, like Bear Brass and A City Lost and Found, that's the one about Will and the Wrecker, or my latest book, Adrift in Melbourne, which takes the reader on seven walks through the city. Or maybe you've heard my podcast, Nothing on TV, where I weave stories out of old newspapers. My take on Melbourne history often draws more on the things that have gone than the things you can still see. So, tune in your mind's eye and let's go. First though, let me acknowledge with respect that this walking tour takes place on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the East Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I call this walk more by land than water. You'll find out why. On a pretty mundane city block, we'll take a walk on the mystic side, encountering fortune tellers, a magic stairway, and a man they called the Beetle. Our starting point is the City of Melbourne's Express Book Bar. That's at Shop 5, 240 Little Collins Street, the corner of Royal Lane, just around the corner from Melbourne Town Hall. Let's go. Now we'll head uphill on Little Collins Street, then turn left down the next laneway, Russell Place. Hit pause now and rejoin me when you get to the corner of Russell Place and Burke Street. Stop one. Right about this spot in the 1850s stood the City Buffet Hotel and caged up in the hotel's backyard tea garden was a pair of lions named Wallace and Lola, as well as an Indian bear, a cheetah, some monkeys and an aviary of songbirds. It wasn't at all uncommon in those days to see exotic animals served up as a hotel sideshow. They could be got pretty cheaply from a disbanding circus or a travelling animal show and voila, you you needed a billiard table. One Adelaide hotel had an elephant in its beer garden. The menagerie from the City Buffet Hotel would eventually be offered to the Victorian Acclimatisation Society as the basis for a zoological collection that would grow into the Melbourne Zoo. In time, a theatre replaced the City Buffet Hotel on this site. The name the theatre eventually settled on was the Bijou Alongside the Bijou Theatre in 1889, right at the Russell Place corner, arose the majestic new Palace Hotel. Seven storeys high, it had 250 rooms, all with hot and cold water, speaking tubes and electric light laid on. The public rooms and vestibules were painted with frescoed scenes from Shakespeare and the novels of Sir Walter Scott. The Palace had hydraulic elevators, its own aerated water plant and, on the roof, a roller skating rink. Now, not long after the Palace Hotel opened, fire destroyed the Bijou Theatre. The Palace on that occasion was merely singed, but over the following year it would survive eight deliberately lit fires. 
Four were lit in the space of just one night. Three of them started in locked and empty bedrooms. Was the place haunted? The owner of the palace was beside himself. No company would insure his hotel and nobody wanted to stay there. He hired firemen to patrol the hotel at night and offered a reward for information leading to the culprit. An official inquiry surmised that the arsonist must be a woman afflicted with the fire disease, since they reasoned that any man wishing to burn the hotel down would have succeeded on the first attempt. Eventually, though, the finger did point to a man. He was Oswald Twist, the hotel's night porter and boot black, who, when a fire started, never seemed to be too far away. Now we're going to head downhill on Burke Street towards Swanson Street. Hit pause now and tune in again when you arrive at Tivoli Arcade. Stop two. The Tivoli Arcade was named after the Tivoli Theatre, the last vestige of vaudeville and the old-time music hall, and it stood on this spot right up until the 1960s. On the downhill side of the theatre entrance was the Tivoli Café, and this was one of several city cafes targeted in 1932 by a police blitz on fortune-telling. During the bleak depression years, some city cafes had tried to attract customers by offering palm readings or teacup readings along with refreshments. A squad of plainclothes police staged a sting at three Burke Street cafes in one afternoon. At the Tivoli Cafe, two policewomen ordered pineapple specials and paid an extra sixpence each for readings. Bam! Proprietor Dennis Raftopoulos was charged under the Police Offences Act. Then, a few doors uphill, at the corner of Royal Lane, the Royal Cafe, run by Raftopoulos's Uncle George, was raided that same afternoon. There, the police women ordered ice cream and had their palms read by a Madame Valder. Constable Betty Martin went first. You have a very sensitive hand, observed Madame Valder. You are easily hurt and will travel more by land than by water. If you are not married, you will be. And she added, do you know anyone named Arthur? The sitter replied in the affirmative and Madame Valder turned then to the hand of Constable Lily Smith. You will have an operation, but not for some time. You will live till 78 and if you are not married, you will be. You will meet someone who has an aeroplane and go exploring and suffer from headaches. Now, as plain Valder Wingrove of North Richmond, Madame Valder would testify in court that she taught herself palmistry and crystal gazing from a book after her husband lost his job. And though she gave about 20 readings a day, she was paid only the going rate for a waitress. The question of illegality hinged on whether customers were imposed upon by her predictions. She admitted that, of course, she couldn't tell how long Constable Smith would live, but she did always warn customers not to take her readings seriously. Besides, as her lawyer said, surely the two policewomen had received their money's worth in amusement. Victoria's Chief Secretary, whose name was Arthur, would explicitly ban fortune-telling the following year, insisting that many women reacted adversely to predictions like Madame Valder's. 
Firstly, how? By marrying men named Arthur, perhaps, and getting headaches. That prohibition against fortune-telling and pretending to exercise witchcraft, etc., would remain on the books as part of the Vagrancy Act right up until 2005. Now we're going to walk on through Tivoli Arcade, then turn right into the Jiggly Rainbow Alley that was named after the Rainbow Hotel that used to back onto it. Now you may need to tune back into these directions as we go along Rainbow Alley, so if you want to pause now, rejoin us in Rainbow Alley. We're going to follow Rainbow Alley through to Little Collins Street, then turn right, that's downhill, at the Swanson Street corner, we'll cross Swanson Street and Little Collins in whichever order the pedestrian lights allow, and then we're heading for the Manchester Unity Arcade, the last arcade you'll come to on Swanson Street before the Collins Street corner, opposite Melbourne Town Hall. Hit pause now and rejoin me when you arrive at Manchester Unity Arcade. Stop three. The Manchester Unity building went up in 1932, the same year that Madame Valder was busted for fortune-telling. The construction of this Art Deco showstopper was meant to signal the beginning of the end of the Great Depression in Melbourne. A building of this size and grandeur would normally take about two years, but such was the willing spirit of the workmen, in other words, it was just about the only building work going on and labour was cheap and plentiful, such was their willing spirit that the Manchester Unity went up at the unheard of rate of one storey per week. Take a look around the arcade, though, and you'll agree it sure doesn't look like a rush job. Heralded as the Wonder Building, it was finished with intricate detail, including an ornamental tower half as high again as the building itself and fitted with every mod con. But the main attraction of the Manchester Unity Building on the day it opened in September 1932 was its escalator, a first for Melbourne, if the pages of the Arabian Nights opened and the magic carpet floated into Collins Street, wrote a Herald reporter who was there, Melbourne could not watch with greater awe. It took about half a minute to convey passengers from the arcade level up to the mezzanine, not quite 14 metres, but Melburnians were entranced. On that first day, more than 60,000 of them took the ride. That Herald reporter identified four stages in what he called the democratic and modern game of escalating, the last stage being the season stage when the escalatee steps off at the top and hurries down the stationary stairway to take another ride. That's right, there was and is no down escalator. I guess Melbourne just wasn't ready for it. If you're lucky, you can walk on through Manchester Unity Arcade, then along an asphalted laneway that leads on to Howie Place. If, however, the roller door is down at the end of Manchester Unity Arcade, turn back towards Swanson Street and retrace your steps just a short way to the Capital Arcade on your left. Follow the Capital Arcade to its end and you're at Howie Place. Hit pause now and rejoin me again once you're in Howie Place. Stop four. This isn't really a stop because you want to explore Howie Place and Pressgrave Place leading off it while you're listening. 
Howie Place. This has always felt to me like the heart of the city. It's out of the way, but close to everything, with multiple points of entry and divergence. It's out of doors, yet sheltered from the weather, and it's wide enough that you can dawdle without blocking traffic. And it seems to me as if a million things have happened here. For instance, fires. Howie Place and its offshoots had their share. In fact, to firefighters, this was one of the danger spots of the city. You see, there were workshops and factories tucked away. There were the kitchens at the rear of Swanson Street restaurants and hotels. And facing Howie Place, a printing works with paper to burn. And the difficulty in fighting fires in this quarter was partly due to the glass roof overhead, which created a flu. It also hindered ladders and hoses and, of course, was liable to shatter in extreme heat. Originally an ordinary right-of-way, Howie Place was arcadified with that glass roof overhead about 1908. Nearly directly opposite Howie Place, on the other side of Little Collins Street, was the rear entrance of Coles Book Arcade. Of course, the main entrance, with its trademark rainbow, faced onto Burke Street. When the enterprising E.W. Cole of the Book Arcade acquired a second shop in Collins Street and the Howie Place Printworks, he came up with the idea of roofing over the right-of-way, renaming it Coles Walk and claiming it as a continuation of his book arcade, linking the Burke and Collins Street branches. To encourage people to linger and also to read, he had instructive pictures, as he called them. They were pages from the illustrated newspapers pasted up on the walls of what he called Coles Walk, fresh and free every week. Now, E.W. Cole had started in bookselling with a barrow at the Eastern Market. Now he boasted that his book arcade stocked a million books. He was passionate about many things, including racial equality, the power of humour, mechanised flight and communicating with monkeys. But his most enduring preoccupation and credo was posted on placards all through the book arcade. It said, read the books, no one asked to buy. In 1909, women with money to burn made a beeline to Howie Place where La Chavon Hair Salon had the exclusive Australian licence to the Nestle permanent wave process. The talk of feminine Europe, said the adverts, over 1,500 heads already waved, that was in the world. By the end of that year, that number had doubled, after which they seemed to have stopped counting. Charles Nestler had perfected the perming process in 1906, but not before his poor wife Katharina had her scalp scorched and all her hair frizzled off. This was at least 10 years before bobbed hair became a thing, and most women still had waist-length hair. The look they were after wasn't curly, but merely crimped. How enticing La Chavon's adverts must have sounded. Just think, they said, of having your hair wavy for a whole year. No curling pins, no fierce plaits, no horrible tongs. Impervious to all such exigencies as hot weather, windy days, damp atmosphere or salt water. And they emphasised always in capitals, that Nestle's process was absolutely harmless. What did it entail? 
Well, first the hair was wound onto 16 brass rollers around which were wrapped flannel bandages soaked in the secret solution. Over those curlers went asbestos cones, which were then poked into an array of heated metal tubes suspended like a chandelier overhead. Nestler's experiments on Katharina had shown that 20 kilograms of hardware could not be borne by follicles alone. Now, this process took several hours and cost five guineas, a fortune. A home perm kit could be had for just two guineas, and pretty soon... A kitchen science version did the rounds calling for borax, gum arabic and spirits of camphor and adventure. Larchevon's exclusive rights to the Nestle perm lasted just for a couple of years, but together with E.W. Cole's glass roof and the tarmacking of the cobblestones, it seems to have raised the tone and the profile of Howie Place. A few years on, a visitor from Adelaide would single it out as a revelation, honeycombed with tiny shops selling frocks, hats, homemade cakes or imitation jewellery. Imitation jewellery might sound like a takedown, but what it signalled was not your mother's jewellery. Over the course of the 1920s and 30s, one side of Howie Place was completely remade, It was hollowed out all the way back to Swanson Street in preparation first for the Capitol Theatre with Capitol House above and then for a string of other fine new buildings facing the Town Hall. Workers who were levelling the site for the Capitol were astounded to find a wooden picket fence standing upright more than a metre below the surface. Here must have stood one of Melbourne's earliest dwellings, removed and its fence buried when the ground was raised to the level of Swanson Street. The 1948 Annual Conference of the Housewives Association, held in Halladale House on Howie Place, was so rowdy that attendees had to be reminded to behave like decent women. Press coverage of the event hinted at infiltration by socialist agitators. This was a Housewives Association conference, mind you. The three-day conference was marked by calls for action on such issues as rent control, childcare, a national campaign for peace and home delivery of bread. When a Mr Evans, manager of the Metropolitan Gas Company, came to address the assembled housewives about the high cost of gas, a policeman was posted in Howie Police. No riot eventuated though the women did hold the gas man's feet to the flames, accusing him of skirting around the issue and being out to make profits. Isn't it time the industry was nationalised? demanded a Mrs Bell of Camberwell, not a suburb usually synonymous with leftism. That afternoon's Herald reported Mr Evans' ordeal under the headline, Women Heckle on Gas. Now we're going to leave Howie Place, Turn left out of Howie Place into Little Collins Street, cross over with care to the other side of Little Collins and walk in the direction of Elizabeth Street. We're going to make our next stop at the corner of a lane called The Causeway. That's opposite Dame Edna Place. Now hit pause and rejoin me once you're at the corner of The Causeway. Stop five. An ideal place to prop while you listen to this bit is outside Causeway House. That's right at the corner of the lane. 
Far from having always been a shopping street, this stretch of Little Collins was for a long time dedicated mainly to the metal trades. Just imagine, must have been hazy with weird-smelling smoke and clangorous with the sounds of metal on metal. The iron framework and ornamental lacework of that Howie Place roof would very likely have been fashioned right here in the neighbourhood. Along the street and its offshooting alleys were, well, let me list them, tinsmiths, ironmongers, safe makers, wire workers, locksmiths, bell hangers, scale makers and brass fitters. And speaking of offshoots, this block, the one that you're facing, is threaded through with more laneways and arcades than any other in the whole city. Among the metal trades along here were a couple of assay works where ore was chemically treated to determine how much pure metal was in it. One had its entrance in Brown Alley, which is now Dame Edna Place. The other assay works was in Bull Alley, now called Balcom Place, and it's the lane closest to the Elizabeth Street corner. Bull Alley used to lead to Clark and Sons, the rear of Clark and Sons, which from gold rush times was one of the city's leading gold brokers. Now, until Melbourne got its own branch of the Royal Mint, gold was smelted into ingots at the Bull Alley works. Victorian gold worth an estimated £100 million sterling passed through Clark and Sons premises. So you can bet that when the building was demolished in 1888, the dirt under the floorboards would have been scoured and panned for any fugitive gold dust. Now I want you to cast your eyes up right to the top of the dirty brown painted brick building that you can see at the corner of Bull Alley down the street. Right here where you're standing is the perfect spot from which to appreciate a likely specimen of local metal craft. Can you see the bouquet of wrought iron flowers sprouting from the top of the turret. If you have time later, I want you to take a stroll down to the corner of Elizabeth Street and check out the iron lacework on the dingy City of Melbourne building that's right there at that corner. Now, from the causeway, let's continue along Little Collins Street just a little further to the Royal Arcade. Turn into the arcade and walk on through. Hit pause now if you need to and play again once you reach the arcade. Stop six. Entering the Royal Arcade from Little Collins Street when the arcade first opened in 1870, you'd have passed a fountain, an aquarium and fernery. And just past the fernery were the quarters of the arcade Beadle. A Beadle? What was that? It was an old-style civic functionary, really a glorified security guard, who was responsible for keeping order. Melbourne's earlier arcade, the Queen's, which had opened in 1853, had proudly advertised its beagle, constantly promenading the arcade to keep out all improper characters, thus enabling ladies to make their purchases without fear of molestation. But by 1870, a beadle in Melbourne was seen as an anachronism. The age condemned this piece of flunkery as offensive and not likely to last, and it speaks little for colonial advancement 
said an affronted young fellow whom the beadle had told to move on. The beadle's name was Frederick Batchelder. He was tall and portly, and by all accounts he was suffused with self-importance. It was part of the job description, really. And he was an object of derision right from the start. Melbourne Punch lampooned him in a series of cartoons and the Herald mocked his awe-inspiring and gorgeous livery. He was decked out, Regency style, in gold-trimmed blue and red livery with a glossy black hat and formidable cane. Let naughty little boys beware, chortled the Herald. The beadle and his brass-tipped cane failed to keep pickpockets at bay, however. Within days of the opening... A policeman was assigned to patrol the arcade daily, with two police there on Saturday nights. But the Beatles' duties weren't confined to crowd control. It was his job to spray the glass roof with water on hot days and to keep the arcade's aquarium well stocked, in the course of which duty he once inadvertently bought goldfish that had been stolen from the Treasury Gardens. And once... Defending his employer's interest in a dispute over some cut flowers, he almost wrecked one of the arcade's shops. The age reported the fracas thus. The beetle is big and the shop is small, and in the course of the evolutions incidental to such a conflict, he knocked down and killed a bullfinch, smashed an aquarium and injured other property. The Royal Arcade's 22 shops included a music seller's, a toy shop, a bird shop, a picture seller's, several fancy goods shops and two photographers. Or, as that well-known Melbourne flaneur, Marcus Clark, put it, it abounds with shops where one can purchase things one doesn't want. Clark praised the arcade as an admirable spot for assignations, much more sheltered than that well-established pick-up spot, the Birkenwills Wills Monument, and less conspicuous. In fact, said Clark, it has everything that can be desired, even a beadle. Frederick Batchelder, the beadle, would remain a fixture of the Royal Arcade for 16 years, and long after that, naughty little boys, now grown old, would fondly remember their one-time nemesis, the man they'd called the beetle. You've been drifting with me, Robin Anir. Thanks for joining me on this walk from Adrift in Melbourne, a three-part podcast series adapted from my book of the same name. You can find other podcasts in this series in your favourite podcast app or at SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for City of Melbourne Libraries. This podcast was recorded and produced by City of Melbourne Libraries.